Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 21, The Periodic Prophet. In this episode, we see how Mendeleev's predictions fixed him permanently in the pantheon of chemical greats. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. Once again, we return towards the beginning of the 19th century. An optician in Germany, Joseph von Fraunhofer, was doing quality testing of his high-quality prisms. Sunlight traversed a slit and then directed through a prism, and, as Isaac Newton showed a century earlier, was broken up into a continuous spectrum of colors. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue indigo, and violet. Except this time, von Fraunhofer noticed breaks, or black lines, disrupting the continuous spectrum. He carefully counted up to nearly 600 such black lines and recorded their positions in the spectrum. Why this happened was unclear. Then, four decades later, in the 1850s, a German chemist, Robert Bunsen, and a German physicist, Robert Kirchhoff, were collaborating on these spectral lines. Bunsen, as you may have guessed, was the inventor of an improved natural gas-fueled burner that you can see to this day in many chemistry laboratories. The Bunsen burner is fed by a tube with flowing gas, and the gas burns in air. The advantage of this burner is that the flame can be variably controlled as to intensity. In many cases, you can adjust the flames so that only a pale blue or even invisible flame happens. Munson himself was involved with that popular question for centuries, gas combustion, and the Bunsen burner was his invention from that research. Kirchhoff found that if you held crystals in a platinum wire in the Bunsen burner flame, the crystals glow in various colors depending upon the crystal. In effect, this is a descendant of Kronstadt's blowpipe in the 1700s. But, if you examined the crystal's glow in the flame through a prism, you will see a variety of distinct bright lines, and not a continuous spectral band of colors. Kirchhoff found that particular elements glow in a burner flame with particular colors. Through a prism, in fact, the colors produce characteristic bands so that you can identify elements solely by their spectrum. This was the first spectroscope. Again, why this happens was not understood for another half-century or more, and we shall revisit the topic later. Scientists did scratch their heads for decades over the semi-random placement of the spectral lines. Suffice it to say that spectroscopic analysis of elements in a sample became a thing in chemistry laboratories. These particular bright lines appeared in a spectrum for samples in a flame, but you can do the same with light passing through a gas. In this case, for a relatively cold gas, the gas absorbs particular wavelengths of light, rather than glowing with particular wavelengths. If the gas is hot, as British engineer Thomas Drummond found, the sample emits those wavelengths. It's like a positive or negative image. 
Cold will absorb particular wavelengths, and hot will emit these wavelengths. Overall, the use of spectroscopy to analyze samples increased immensely the sensitivity to low levels of elements. For example, Bunsen calculated that one could detect via spectroscopy sodium chlorate in under what we would say 3 nanograms, or 3 times 10 to the negative ninth grams. So, now scientists guessed that the dark lines Fraunhofer saw in a solar spectrum in 1814 were absorption of certain wavelengths at the cooler surface of the sun with respect to its interior. And now scientists could tell unequivocally what elements were in the sun. The dark lines corresponded exactly to certain lines already known from elements on Earth. Therefore, we know that the sun is not made of Aristotle's quintessence, a special heavenly element, but real everyday elements. The four-element theory was finally destroyed completely. You can sample something remotely and determine what it's made of. You can even take spectra of distant stars and determine their elemental composition. Of course, suppose you found spectral lines in a sample that didn't correspond to any known lines. That meant you found a new element within the sample. Bunsen and Kirchhoff did exactly this in 1860 with some mineral water from the Durkheimer spring and saw a variety of unknown lines, including a sky-blue one. After working with 50 tons of water from the spring, they got a few grams of this new element's salt. They named the element cesium, Latin for clear blue sky, and discovered it was like other alkali metals, potassium and sodium. The following year, they discovered another unknown element with a deep red spectral line in a mineral called lepidolith, a source of lithium. So they called it rubidium. Word of this newfangled spectroscopy filtered out to other chemists. One was Paul-Émile Lecoq de Bois-de-Baudrin in France. He was researching minerals from the Pyrenees Mountains in southwestern France using a spectroscope. In a batch of zinc ore in 1875, he found a new element which he named gallium, for Latin Gaul, which refers to France. Or maybe for himself, because Latin gallus means cock or rooster and his name was Lecoq. Or maybe both. Maybe it was an attempt at a dad joke, even though he had no kids. Eventually, he was able to isolate enough of this gallium metal to pin down its chemical and physical properties. Mendeleev read de Beaubaudrin's paper about this gallium and realized its properties matched almost perfectly with his prediction of Eka aluminum. A Swedish chemist, Lars Fredrik Nilsson, discovered a new element he called scandium, after Scandinavia, in 1879. His colleague, Per Theodor Kleva, saw immediately its properties matched Mendeleev's prediction of Eka boron. Then, in 1886, Clemens Winkler, a German chemist, was researching a silver ore, but could only account for 93% of the sample's weight by known elements. The remaining 7% was a new element, which he termed germanium. Germanium was after Germany, 
but maybe it was also a snipe at de Beaubaudrin's gallium for France. Nationalism was a real thing back then. It matched the echisilicon's properties which Mendeleev predicted. So, a decade and a half after Mendeleev predicted three elements, they were found and corresponded nicely with his predictions. Mendeleev was suddenly famous, almost prophet-like. He was the first person to actually bring order to the elements, and even predict accurately new ones. And from a quick glance at the periodic table, a chemist, to this day, can get a good idea of an element's physical and chemical properties. This is why every chemistry class and laboratory has a periodic table hanging on a wall somewhere. But still, we must realize that the table was not explainable, and that explanation would have to wait several more decades. Victor von Richter, a German chemist, in 1885, summarized this view. It appears as the task of theoretical chemistry in this direction first to find the real law of atomic numbers, then to develop a hypothesis which is satisfactory for explaining several primordial substances in a manner similar to that used for the carbon compounds. At any rate, it is even now established that the qualities of the elements can be related to quantities, like colors to vibrations, and that his goal of all scientific explanation of nature is also attainable with regard to the chemical elements. There were still problems with Mendeleev's periodic system, as many European languages call it, or periodic table, as we call it in English. One major issue with it was a set of elements being discovered called the rare earth elements. The first one, at least as its oxide, was found by a Finnish chemist, Johann Gadolin, in 1794, in a quarry near Stockholm. It was finally isolated half a century later and named yttrium, after the local town Yitterby. All through the 19th and first decade of the 20th century, more of these rare earths were found, 14 in all. Every one of them had a valence of three, and they all had similar atomic weights. It took a while for chemists to separate these elements definitively because they were all so similar chemically. So how do you squeeze 14 very similar elements into one little square on the table? This was a problem till the 1920s. In fact, it wasn't at all obvious from Mendeleev's table how many of these rare earth elements there should be. Mendeleev's predictions weren't always right, and most scientists don't realize this. He incorrectly guessed at an analog to cerium with atomic weight 54. He was wrong about an echa-niobium with an atomic weight of 146 and an echa-cesium of 175. Then there was the new field of spectroscopy of extraterrestrial bodies like the Sun with mysterious spectral lines. So Mendeleev predicted the element coronium with an atomic weight lighter than hydrogen at 0.4. That was entirely bogus. The bands in the spectrum proved later to be a form of iron. By 1902, he published a paper proposing that the ether not the chemical nor the Aristotelian quintessence, but the alleged medium in which light was supposed to travel, was also an element, and an inert gas of atomic weight 0.17.
That too was entirely wrong. But again, in 1902, scientists still had no clear and obvious model of what atoms were or what made elements different from each other. The periodic table at that time was really an empirical, not a theoretical chart of elements. There was a second problem with the table, or at least how scientists might revisit the table in light of new knowledge. And this had to do with a completely unknown set of elements to Mendeleev in 1871. In the 1880s, John William Strutt, also known as Lord Rayleigh, spent a lot of time and effort determining highly accurate atomic weights of the elements hydrogen, nitrogen, and oxygen. He was positively inclined toward Prout's hypothesis back at the beginning of the century that all atoms are constructed from hydrogen atoms. The reason is that a large proportion of atomic weights are very nearly whole numbers with respect to hydrogen. One oddity he discovered was that the atomic weight of nitrogen seemed to vary with the source. That is, even with an accuracy down to one part in 10,000, nitrogen extracted from soil materials and other chemical reactions had a very slightly lower atomic weight than nitrogen extracted from the air. He was confused and published a note in the scientific journal Nature in September 1892 about this. William Ramsey, a Scottish chemist, recalled our old friend Henry Cavendish's experiment from a hundred years earlier. In it, Cavendish found that there was a tiny amount, one one hundred twentieth of the original sample of air, that refused to react with anything at all. Technology in the late 18th century wasn't able to continue further with Cavendish's research. How did Ramsey even know about this obscure bit of chemical trivia? Nationalism, as I've noted, was a thing back then, and one of these nationalistic controversies that occasionally flamed up was who discovered that water was a compound. Was it a Frenchman or a Briton? George Wilson, a professor at the University of Edinburgh, wrote a pro-British biography of Henry Cavendish called Life of the Honorable Henry Cavendish, including abstracts of his more important scientific papers and a critical inquiry into the claims of all the alleged discoverers of the composition of water in 1851, and mentioned this experiment. While he was a student, Ramsey purchased a used copy of Wilson's biography of Cavendish. Ramsey recalled reading this, and wondered if there was some contamination of atmospheric nitrogen with some heavier gas. But he didn't say anything about contamination of the nitrogen when he replied to Lord Rayleigh in October 1892 in Nature as well. Rayleigh likewise suspected something else in the nitrogen, but with Rayleigh's agreement, Ramsey started his own research on the matter in April 1893. By 1894, both scientists agreed that there really was something else in the atmospheric nitrogen. They had a gentleman's agreement to work in tandem. Ramsey researched this contaminant's chemistry, and Rayleigh studied its physical properties. The first results were announced at Oxford at the British Association meeting, but they were criticized. Maybe instead of a new element, they created some kind of nitrogen analog of ozone gas, an allotrope of oxygen, that is, an elemental form but with a different molecular structure, like O3, but now N3. And also, they were told that how could something like this have not been detected earlier? 
Ramsey put his own completely unreactive sample of contaminant into a spectroscope. He heated the gas to see what spectroscopic lines would glow. And, sure enough, there were unknown new spectral lines, primarily red and green. It was clearly a new, previously undetected gas, which Ramsey named argon, from ancient Greek argos, inert, lazy, idle. As Ramsey wrote, The gas deserves the name argon, for it is a most astonishingly indifferent body, inasmuch as it is unattacked by elements of very opposite character, varying from sodium and magnesium on the one hand, oxygen, chlorine, and sulfur on the other. It will be interesting to see if fluorine also is without action, but for the present that experiment must be postponed on account of difficulties of manipulation. We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. Fluorine is the most reactive element. It even attacks glass. So working with fluorine is extremely difficult, even under the best of conditions. Argon had an atomic weight of about 40, which put it somewhere around the known elements of sulfur, 32, chlorine, 35.5, potassium, 39, and calcium, a bit over 40. At first glance, you might say to stick argon between potassium and calcium. But wait! we do have to consider argon's chemical properties. And it had the only chemical property of refusing to react at all. So we give it valence zero. Now what do we do? There was no column for valence zero in Mendeleev's periodic table. In Ramsey's own words to Lord Rayleigh in May 1894, Has it occurred to you that there is room for gaseous elements at the end of the first column of the periodic table? Thus, Lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, fluorine, XXX, etc. Such elements should have the density 20 or thereabouts and 0.8%, 1 120th about, of the nitrogen of the air could so raise the density of nitrogen. If we consider valences of elements, then sulfur is 2, chlorine is 1, potassium is 1, and calcium is 2. Argon is 0, so we place it between chlorine of 1 and potassium of 1. This gives us a nice sequence of 2, 1, 0, 1, 2. But now we have a single element floating out in periodic space, unrelated to any other elements. There must be more, an entire family of inert elements with valence 0. Where are they? Ramsey sent their research to the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C., submitted for the Hodgkins Prize for the Best Discovery for Atmospheric Air, and they won it. And then they published their work in the Royal Society's journal Philosophical Transactions in the summer of 1895. There was still some debate as to whether argon's molecules were diatomic, 
like the other known gases, hydrogen, chlorine, oxygen, etc., or monatomic. Based on their experiments of gaseous diffusion, argon was clearly monatomic. In the meantime, the British writer H.G. Wells had heard of Ramsey's work, and he was fascinated. Argon was so strange and weird that he decided to include it in his new science fiction story, War of the Worlds, published in 1898. In it, he wrote that the Martians used a kind of chemical warfare on earthlings. Here is a LibriVox public domain recording of the quote. The Martians are able to discharge enormous clouds of a black and poisonous vapor by means of rockets. They have smothered our batteries, destroyed Richmond, Kingston and Wimbledon, and are advancing slowly towards London, destroying everything on the way. It is impossible to stop them. There is no safety from the black smoke but in instant flight. What was Wells's black smoke? As Wells wrote, Neither is the composition of the black smoke known, which the Martians used with such deadly effect, and the generator of the heat rays remains a puzzle. The terrible disasters at the Ealing and South Kensington laboratories have disinclined analysts for further investigation upon the latter. Spectrum analysis of the black powder points unmistakably to the presence of an unknown element with a brilliant group of three lines in the green, and it is possible that it combines with argon to form a compound which acts at once with deadly effect upon some constituent of the blood. The idea of a compound of argon, despite its valence of zero, was proposed originally by Berthelot, based on some research with argon electrically sparked in benzene vapor. Ramsey was skeptical, and retorted that the argon likely was just dissolved in the benzene, not reacted. The matter was resolved by 1912, when Robert Strutt, Lord Rayleigh's son, showed that there was clearly no reaction between benzene and argon. Meanwhile, Ramsey began looking for other elements similar to argon. In 1895, he found out about a weird sample of gas extracted from uranium-based minerals called clevite in the USA. This will lead also to another topic, that of radioactivity later in the series, but as yet unknown to Ramsey. It was thought to be nitrogen, but Ramsey tested the gas with a spectroscope. Once again, there were new unknown spectral lines, neither nitrogen nor argon. Even weirder, these spectral lines matched up exactly with some lines in a solar spectrum taken in 1868 by French astronomer Pierre Janssen during a solar eclipse. English astronomer Joseph Lockyer at the time claimed this was a new element, helium, from Greek helios, sun, but scientists didn't take this claim so seriously. Spectroscopy was a new technique in 1868, not overly well tested, and there was no other evidence for this alleged helium. But now Ramsey found actual helium on the Earth, and determined its atomic weight to be 4 between hydrogen and lithium. It also has valence 0, and so it went at the top of the inert gas column, and Lockyer was right. And helium was the first element identified in a heavenly body before being found on Earth. 
Ramsey kept working at this family of inert gases. The technology of generating extreme cold was just becoming practical, so Ramsey was able to cool air enough to liquefy it. Ramsey painstakingly boiled this liquid air, hoping to find more inert elements. And so he did. He found neon, from Greek new, krypton, from Greek hidden, and xenon, from Greek stranger. Because this family of inert elements was inert, that is, no chemistry occurred, they were generally considered less important than other more fun-loving elements. Until 1910, when a French chemist, Georges Claude, found that if you jammed electricity through a glass globe of neon, the neon glowed with a brilliant orange color. The industry of neon lights was born. In 1904, Ramsey won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for his research. Later, we shall revisit the inert elements, for in the second half of the 20th century, they were found to be not quite so inert. In the future, we shall also review the development of the periodic table in the 20th century and the many later elements added to it, including artificial elements. In our next episode, we begin examination of another major branch of chemistry, physical chemistry, which was also founded in the 19th century. Until then, brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.